I missed this conversion to win the game for us right in front of the post. And my, and my sports teacher, he said, bloody hell, Nigel. He said, will you go on referee or something, will you? And I said, right, okay then. So I went to give refereeing a go. And that's how we started, just by, by pure, pure chance, really. listening to Agriculture, a podcast that interviews a range of inspirational people from the farming community with a whole host of interesting tales to tell. I'm Mary Jane Laurie and in this episode I'm joined by Nigel Owens, MBE. Nigel Owens is a former international rugby referee and for many farming families will be a household name. He retired from professional refereeing in 2020 and has recently purchased a farm in Wales. We had a great conversation about his involvement in the farming community from a young age, his career in rugby, and how he's found himself owning his own herd of Herefords. We also talked openly about his mental health journey, diversity, and how he copes under pressure. Hi Nigel, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Can you tell me a bit about your background? What was your childhood like in Wales? Yeah, I was brought up in in West Wales back in the 1970s. And if you're trying to people listening want to imagine what being bought up in West Wales was like in the 1970s, then uh, then come here now because nothing's changed here. <laughs> um, it was a pretty sort of mixed sort of agricultural coal mining community. Um, mm-hmm. A lot in the village worked. It's a very small village, population of about 140 people in the whole village. Um, every single one of us were speaking fluent first language that's changed now the population of the village is not much more now probably about 190 maybe Uh, and the world speaking population is probably about about 50 percent in the village by by this time so my dad was a coal miner my mum then worked a couple of hours as a cook in the primary school canteen after i started school there so he went to a small school of only 14 pupils in the whole school so very old-fashioned upbringing really uh, where you know agricultural community was was around us my grandfather had a small holding and when I mean small holding you know they used to keep um, a couple of pigs three or four cows which he'd milk and stuff before going to work down the mines chickens and just to to feed the family because my dad was one of one of seven my mum's grandparents and great-grandparents then they were tenant farmers so there's always been sort of agricultural in in the blood really I always took up my um uncle's farm every school holidays when I was a kid to stay there milking farm and then I, I went to work in the farm when I when I left school my dad as I said worked in the coal mine and then we had a, a limestone quarry in the village which is still going today which employed pretty much most of the people in the village and yeah, he worked there as well then later on so yeah my upbringing was a very sort of traditional rural West Wales and where I lived uh, which I only moved about two miles down the road now it's called Munith Kerrig in Welsh and if you translate that to English it translates to mountain of stone and that's pretty much what it is. And you were involved in young farmers when you were younger weren't you? What did the club mean to you? What did you get out of being in the young farmers? Yeah just by chance that happened really because even though I sort of spent a lot of time on my uncle's farm and there's a little farm living next door to where I was brought up then which I go up and help every Saturday morning so although farming was in the blood I was quite late joining the young farmers I was about 15, 16 I think when I joined the young farmers which was just by pure chance, really, because by that time, sort of 16 years of age, sort of rugby and refereeing and other stuff was sort of taken over in my life. Yeah, Young Farmers Club, which has unfortunately ceased to be you now, they've joined with 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 another Young Farmers Club. They were sort of very low in numbers, and they sort of tried to sort of kickstart things again. And then a club leader called... Howard Roberts and Delith Jones from Tanathanek, ex-members, got together. And they came and asked me and my cousin then, 
um, Helen, who was living alongside me, because we used to do a lot in, you know, I was doing sort of in the local drama school here, um, uh, performing in school, chapel and stuff like that and everything. So he came and asked us, would we, you know, would we like to go to Young Farmers? They put on a free minibus to pick us up. And about 12, <laughs> 14 of us went then from the yep. village, really, uh, which was quite a few miles from the actual Young Farmers Club village itself. And we went to the, and we became sort of quite sort of prominent members of the Young Farmers and for, for many years until then refereeing took over as well. So the Young Farmers movement is, is such a, a wonderful movement. And, and I'm so glad that I became part of it and still part of it today as president of, of the National Young Farmers the opportunity it gives you as a young person, you know, um, obviously yeah. hugely important that it still maintains those true values of, of a young farmers club, you know, of the agricultural community, but also as well, it, even if you're not from an agricultural community, it gives you opportunities to participate in so many different things, which, which can help you grow as a person and become very useful to you later on in life, you know, like public speaking, getting used to standing up in front of people, activities within the club, uh, and obviously then from sort of a farming or an agricultural countryside background of all the skills and sort of friends and husbands and wives you can meet as well through <laughs> the Farmers Club. So it is, yeah. it is really, really a wonderful, wonderful movement. Yeah, it's a it's proper rural matchmaking service, isn't it? It certainly it is. is around here anyway. That's where my parents met as well. <laughs> so it's a, it's a great social aspect to it. So you mentioned there about the same sort of time that you were in Young Farmers, you started getting into rugby. Did you play at school? And how did you go from playing rugby to the refereeing? When I was growing up as a teenager, most rugby in Wales was in the schools. You played rugby in school. You didn't really have your sort of Sunday morning junior rugby at that time. That came then sort of into prominence more after the sort of teacher strikes of sort of 82, 83, when clubs sort of then started taking over sort of a bit from, from the rugby on, on the weekends. But apart from that, it was just rugby in school. So I played rugby in school and started refereeing at 16 years of age, again, just by, by pure chance. I missed a conversion right in front of the post to win the game in school. I was playing with the first 15. I was playing full-back. I wasn't a bad full-back, but uh, as many people told me, I wasn't a very good one either. <laughs> and um, I missed this conversion to win the game for us right in front of the post and my, and my sports teacher John Bynum the late John Bynum unfortunately said to me he said bloody hell Nigel he said will you go and referee or something will you and I said right okay then so I went to give refereeing a go helped out refereeing some school games in school um, and that's how it started just by by pure pure chance really and um, I suppose the rest is history as they say. So can you talk us through your career then Nigel and how you progressed to be widely regarded as the world's best rugby referee? What the best you speak to. Um, very different to today and I think that wasn't a bad thing to be honest back then you started refereeing by by your love of the game and it was a hobby and you got into refereeing either like I did you know just helped out refereeing some school games after mission that conversion and enjoyed it uh, others got into refereeing maybe they got a, an injury playing playing rugby uh, some would go into refereeing just by chance they turn up to watch their um local rugby club playing a Saturday and the ref hadn't turned up and they'd, you know, where you played the game, can you go and ref this one to have a game? And <laughs> so that's how, a lot of, that's how a lot of people got into refereeing back then. Now it's different. Now it's people go into it now, sometimes for the wrong reason, because they see it as a career opportunity, which is fine. But, you know, it's, it's with that goal of, you know, I, I want to be a World Cup referee or I want to be on telly refereeing every weekend. And that's, that's not the right reason because... Until you get to that stage, there's a lot of hard work. It's not something you just start today and then 
in a few months time you're at the very top of it it's, yeah, it's, of a, it's a longer process so I got into it because it was a hobby and then obviously then as I enjoyed it as a hobby as you would do uh, the better your performance performances were the more opportunities you get and then you get somebody out to assess you and coach you and they tell you look yes you're doing well and then you work on this and then you work on that and then you get a more difficult level game and then you climb up the ladder then um, mm-hmm. through the ranks um, and then you get to the, to the very top. So that's, and I think that was the best way, I think, because what I think you're seeing today sometimes with refereeing is they push a lot of young referees very early, sometimes too early because they want, for some reason, young referees, um, which is fine. But what you see today then sometimes is some of these referees are making errors, some big errors in games, which we would have done in my era as you're getting to the top. So the time you actually get to the top, yes, you make errors, but a lot of the errors that would make a huge difference in the game, you've done them along the way and you've learned from them. So you're not doing a big error then in a Calcutta Cup game. You've done it and you've learned from it. Today, we've seen, you know, over recent games, you've seen some quite big errors and talking points in games. And sometimes that is because the referee is is in this situation and something's happening for the first time and doesn't know how to deal with it. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's how my refereeing started. It was a sort of a progression, really, up up through those ranks over a sort of period of time. The the difference today is they have structures in place today. We have an academy system here, which I uh, keep an eye on or look over. There's coaching for referees today, which didn't have when I was was, was coming through the levels. Um, So all that structure does, really, which is in place today, which is a very good structure, is it'll help somebody get to the top. Instead of maybe taking 10 years, they can get there in five years. So the structure helps you get there. What the structure won't do is help somebody get there who's not going to get there anyway. So it's a little bit like the old saying, the cream will always get to the top. So today the structure will help you get to the top a few seasons sooner than it would have done if you would have sort of been doing it years ago and just got there on, on your own sort of, device really so um that's how my refereeing sort of started and, and then progressed then gradually through through the ranks then and the opportunities you know came along the way what was your rugby career highlight well i, I think the, the pinnacle would be the world cup final you know that's that's the biggest game in world rugby which only happens once every every four years and when you're appointed to referee that game you are then regarded as as the best of the very very top of of your game but of course along that career then there would be other highlights as well doing your your first professional game your first local cup final your first international your first six nations game you know your first maybe grand slam deciding game so that so they're always sort of highlights within a highlight really but i suppose you know if you're asking me you know the one that sort of will stand out will, will be the world. It won't stand out. There are other games that will stand out as probably one of the best games that's ever been, mm-hmm. which is South Africa, New Zealand in 2013 in Ellis Park. But as, you know, as an occasion um, and your pinnacle in refereeing, then then the World Cup would, would be that highlight. And not just because of what it meant for me, like, you know, you, you're deemed to be the best in the world and you're appointed to the biggest game in the world on this massive stage. But what it meant to my family and the village and the community as well, you know, what it meant yeah. for all of them, the celebration, you know, the bunting, the banners, everything up in the village. It was like a carnival week there all week. So it wasn't <laughs> just 
for me, refing that, it was it was more than that. You know, it was something for the whole community to to feel a part of. Yeah, and everyone that supported you along the way, and it's just a big occasion, as you say, isn't it, when you get to it something is. like that. So how do you cope with that pressure of walking out into the pitch with tens of thousands of fans there and then millions watching at home? And of course now the referees wear mics, don't they? So they can hear what you're saying at home as well. How do you cope with that pressure? Because of the enjoyment of it all, because of that sort of enjoyment of walking out, that was my favourite part of the game was that sort of build up in the changing rooms and then walking out behind the two teams into the cauldron, that atmosphere. You know, that, that was something that sort of you know stays with you for forever really and i think it's something in you i think you know it's, it's a bit like people doing different jobs you know how does a how does a surgeon under huge pressure be able to perform a, a life-saving operation on the table knowing that somebody's life is in his hands you know so you know yeah. not everybody can do that uh, not everybody can sort of do the various jobs that they that they that they do uh, and i think it's the same as refereeing i think it's you know, it's in you to be because if you can't deal with that pressure that comes with it, you're not going to make a top referee, or you're certainly not going to stay at the top. So you retired from professional rugby in 2020. Why did that feel like the right time to retire? A lot of different things. I, I think sort of you know I've been doing it for the best part of 34 years, sort of nearly 20 years on the international stage or professional stage. And you're away a lot from home, a lot of traveling. Yeah. Um, and I sort of flew out to Japan in 2019 for the World Cup. And obviously, for my love of farming, I bought a couple of acres around the house here. I'd planned then to get a couple of sort of head of a cattle. Um, and I was going to do a little bit of sort of hobby farming. And I couldn't, I couldn't do that if I was going to be away all the time. So there were other yeah. things in my life I was passionate and wanted to do. Um, and I got flew to Japan, and I remember sort of, I, you know, I can't wait to get home because the first cattle are arriving when I get home from Japan. And I thought, you know what? If I can't wait to get home after just landing in Japan, then it's time to, to exit, really. And because you're away from home a lot, you know, it, it it's becomes a lot of strain on, on relationships, and, and, you know, we lose out on a lot of family occasions, you know, some weddings I haven't been able to go to, some funerals of close family that I've been away, you know, on the other side of the world. And obviously my dad is getting older. So I just wanted to be home more as well. And although I still enjoyed my refereeing, you know, I enjoyed that World Cup. I enjoyed the refereeing itself, but I just didn't enjoy everything else that came with it, all the politics that came with it and the, the meetings and away then. You fly out to Australia for three days for refereeing, camp back home. And I just, the stuff like that, I just, you know, didn't want to do anymore really and yeah. you know I wanted to finish at the top of the game as well I didn't want to sort of go on um, and then people saying oh he's gone past his best he should have finished a long term so I wanted to sort of leave on my own terms really at the very top of the game and as well I, you know it's, it's, I'm pretty confident if I went if I went out now and sort of trained hard for four weeks I'm pretty confident that I could get back on the field and and go to the World Cup in France next year and and perform at the very top of my game again but it, it just felt the right time to finish for a lot of different reasons, um, really, to, to be honest with you. So um, I would have liked to finish in the Six Nations rather than on my 100th game. Um, but then COVID came and uh, some sort of they wanted to move on then and select new referees for the next cycle of the World Cup. So sort of things ended a bit differently. And I would have liked to sort of go out on the field knowing that this is my last game. So, But it, it, it was the right time to finish. Um, and. You know, as I said, 
it's, it's a very difficult balance for somebody to get to finish at the very top of your game because it's a bit like when people t- you know, tell you if you're on stage as a comedian you always leave the stage of people wanting more yeah it's very difficult to leave the stage of people want more because you still think you can give more and and, and the adrenaline and enjoyment of it of it all really um, and that's why a lot of people get it so wrong. A lot of people go on too long, particularly in sports, mm-hmm. um, because they think, well, you know, I, I'm still at the top of my game. Why, why am I finishing? And I ask that my, myself. Um, so it's a very difficult decision to make. Um, thankfully, it was, you know, this was the right one, I think, anyway. So you mentioned about that sort of time that you bought a few hectares of land. How did that opportunity come about? And what sort of farm have you got now today? Yeah, um, a little bit more than I... Uh, anticipated at the moment <laughs> to be honest with you um i used to spend my summer holidays on on, on the farm whether it's a neighbor's farm or, or my uncle's farm and then as i said i worked on the farm when i left school so it's always something i wanted to do over the years was to, was to be a farmer really because a long time before i became a referee my dream at eight years of age i always wanted to have have a farm or have a, be a farmer mm-hmm. um and obviously from somebody who was not from a farming sort of family as in your parents were farmers uh, living on a on a council estate in in West Wales here, you know the only way I was going to get a farm was if I was going to marry into one, and <laughs> there was no chance of that happening. <laughs> so, um, so obviously the referee took over then, and obviously during that period, you know, I, I saved up and I managed to persuade a farmer, or I'm sure listeners will know, don't want to part with land. Yeah. I managed after about five years of persuading the farmer here, um, we've got plenty of land to sell me about 13 acres around the house here where I'm living now. Mm-hmm. Um, put a shed up here and then 15 acres came for sale then about a mile down the road so it's about 28 acres and put a shed up here and I always wanted to have well Hereford cattle uh, I, I always wanted to I've always loved Hereford cattle since those young days going up my uncle's farm with a Hereford bull and your uncle put him on his back because it's so docile thing but obviously yeah. you, you never trust a bull as, 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 as I'm sure everybody knows but there was always a sort of love for the Hereford breed, really. And mm-hmm. I wanted something as well that was going to be quite docile, easy to handle if you needed to handle them on your own, uh, easy carving, uh, and obviously as well that the meat, I know, uh, are sort of some of the best meat in, in, in tastiness in, in, in the world. Uh, although I didn't buy my cattle for, for meat, uh, I bought them some good bloodlines, most for breeding. Some I do supply a local butcher when I have something, but that's not the main aim of the herd. And then set all that up, as I said, everything was ready, went to Japan, bought a couple of pedigree Hereford heifers and, and a bull, and they were arriving when I got back from Japan. And then um, a dispersal herd came from the Rod Baston College uh, dispersal herd. So I bought a couple of, of cattle from there as well, and they arrived at sort of end of November, beginning of December. And that was it. I was going to have about uh, 28 acres. I was going to keep about 10, 12 head of Hereford. There was yeah. an opportunity then to, to rent about 27 acres, a bit of woodland, a bit of grazing, a bit of silage fields up the road. So I'd have enough then, and the sheds were big enough. I was able to have a sort of herd of about 18, 20 in total, something like that, you know. And then a friend of mine called here and, and said he was looking to, to buy a, a small holding, literally as the crow files a mile from where I'm living now, uh, which was a 60-acre small holding. The old people there uh, had passed away in the 90s and they were having first refusal on this farm because his dad was renting it at the time. And he was going, but he didn't want all the farm. He just wanted to buy the, 
the house and, and the courtyard and, and a couple of sheds on the yard and um, about 20 acres and he was looking for somebody then to buy the other 40 acres to make it uh, viable and, and affordable for him to buy mm-hmm. uh, what he wanted. So he said, was I looking for more land? And I said, well, no, no not really, but, you know, you know, I you have a look. So I went up and, um, well, it was a beautiful small holding, very traditional old farmhouse, um, yeah. little courtyard, a lovely little farm, um, which needed a lot of work, obviously. And then he's, he said, okay, then, you know, uh, let me know how much you're looking and st- stuff like that uh, for, for the land and I'll see. And then he, fe- he rung back a couple of days later and said, like, I, I'm, we're not going to go for it now. It, it'll mean us sort of having to sell you, living on a caravan on the farm and the wife and the kids, we're not going to do that. So we're not going to go ahead with it. And I said, well, do you mind if, if I sort of inquired about it then? So I rung the, mm-hmm. the, the son who was selling the place up. And he said, Nigel, we'd, we'd love you to buy the place because my mum and dad were, were big fans of yours and we'd love you. So it, it didn't even go on the market. So we landed up then buying this little small holding. Um, <laughs> so we had to pull the old farmhouse down. There was too much work to it. Built okay. a new house there, which is going on at the moment. And mm-hmm. then hopefully that'll be ready sort of May, June time. And then we'll be moving up there then, still keeping the, the land here uh, and the sheds yep. and then yep. renting where we're living out now. So landed up now with... With 90 acres and renting another 40 and a herd of 72 at the moment. Um, pedigree, pedigree <laughs> hairy fuzzy. So, yeah, it's, it's gone more, gone from a bit of hobby farming to pretty much um, keeping me busy most of the time now. Yeah, that sounds like a serious operation. It's just certainly snowballed in a very short space of time. It does, yeah. So, so you talk about your love for Herefords. Why did you choose to go for pedigree livestock rather than commercial? Because obviously there's challenges from from having pedigrees and you know, keeping the right lines and things. Was that just because you loved the breed or why did you choose that? Um, no, it, it, I sort of, it, I like the look of the breed. You know, when, it, when you see the hair, if it was out in the field, especially in the summer, they're grazing in a lovely sort of sunset going down and, and they, they look beautiful, beautiful animals. And um, so I wanted something when I was going to look out the window that I, you know, that I would like the look of them as well. There are other cattle which, you know, look lovely as well, don't get me wrong, but the hair, if it was, uh, it's a bit like, you know, when you're not going to marry somebody that when you get up in the morning, you don't, you, you don't look like the look of the person lying next door to you, are you? So it's a bit like I want to look out and like what I was seeing in the field yeah, in front of, of me. So I didn't want to sort of buy into the commercial. It, 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 my aim wasn't to sort of, you know, keep cattle and, and send them to slaughter. My aim was to get good bloodlines and, you know, have the generations of the family passed down as well. You know, there's, there's, I've got two sisters here now and a daughter, and then she's due to have a, a bull next spring and then so you know you'll have the sort of bloodlines i'm not an expert on the bloodlines i know a little bit about it mm-hmm. um so that's the reason why i went on the pedigree now i you know as i said so i've got a couple of cattle here that um there's a local butcher that i supply so um what i do then is i i don't sort of castrate my bulls at all um okay so when they get about 16 months 15 16 months if they're not going to sort of make it as as bulls then they'll they'll go then to the butcher for meat then in about 16, 16 months then. Okay. Um, but most of them go as bulls, to, to be honest. Um, only one, because of his feet, weren't quite right. So only one's really gone to the butchery. So what I've had to do, I, I bought in from another pedigree Hereford breeder. I bought in a couple of um, young steers from him. Uh, and then obviously they'll, they'll go to the butcher then sort of, you know, over the next sort of few months and so, because I won't have something to to supply him all the time with really. And then obviously, you know, I've got a heifer now, a lovely heifer actually, which um, she's been sort of with a bull now the last three, four months and she's not in calf yet. So, you know, okay. there's a chance that she probably, I haven't seen a bull in now the last cycle, so fingers crossed 
but if she's not in calf, then obviously you know she, she'd be going then to the butcher then. So so that's why I went on the pedigree route, route really because you know you know that I I like to sort of the bloodlines and the history of them as well, and um, you know I, I I do get a bit attached to them as well to be honest with you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that's true for most farmers. You can't help but get attached when you're working yeah. with them every day. So are you aiming for a spring calving? Do you try and keep calving tight or you you got a wider calving range? Well, when I bought in, I was a bit all over the place because obviously I was buying in from different dispersal herds. And then I sort of, because of the, the, the extra land came about and quite a few good bloodlines came for sale in dispersal herds, like the Culvera herd, the Greenyards herd. So all of a sudden there was some really good quality bloodlines coming up for sale unexpectedly so I bought a couple there so I landed up then with probably instead of buying in and then building up I sort of I bought in um I won't buy nothing the herd is closed now and obviously now what I'm able to do now is sort of you know weed out the ones that are not the best and and sell yeah. them on um yeah. or you know unfortunately one was prolapsed here um last year so when when I weaned the calf of her she'd obviously unfortunately then she'd, she'd have to go so you know those things happen so I, I my calving was a little bit sort of because of the buying in, it was a little bit all, all over the shop, really. Summer in June, summer in spring, summer in autumn, summer in September, um, summer in December. But yeah. what I've done this year now, I've, I've kept um, cattle that sort of calm, sort of November, December, January. I've kept them back with the spring carvers. I've kept everything back a month later this year. So I've put the bull in with them sort of end of June, July time. So they'll be carving from sort of, early April onwards rather than sort of late February, early March onwards because then once they carve, the ease of sort of um, keeping them, then they can go, they can either carve out or they can go straight out then when when they carve because, it, you know, once you're carving in, you need a lot of sheds and a lot of space and stuff, so ease of management yeah. really. So, yeah, so the plan is, is to carve around sort of April time, um, mm-hmm. most of them, and then... I don't like to put the heifers to the bull until they're about sort of 22, sometimes 24 months. Um, yep. Let them grow a bit. You know, some people I know put them at 16, 17, 18 months. I, I like them to be not far off 24 months, to be honest. Um, so then with that, then I put those heifers to the bull then um, around sort of January, February time. So they, so the heifers will carve in, in November time, early mm-hmm. December. And then obviously then um, they will sort of be held back then and, and rejoin the, the rest of the herd then to go to spring carving. So so my heifers were carving in the autumn. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, so, you know, you get the odd one or two, which I've got one cow, which I returned to the bull yesterday. She had twins, but the vet thought she wouldn't keep them. So she obviously lost them. So she's bulling again. So obviously she'll be out of sync next year, which which is fine. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's what I'm planning for really this sort of couple in the in the autumn and then the main main lot of food then will be in um, in the spring yeah just consolidates your workload a bit doesn't it so that you you know when you really need to be on the it farm. does yeah yeah particularly when you're um so sort of from a way speaking somewhere you don't have to you know i know then like in my diary i can keep it clear for not for april or i can tell them look i'm more than happy to come to speak to you on this occasion or this event um but i am carving so if something does happen that i that that'll take priority and then they they can take the decision the decision yeah. then you know so um and, and as well it's um i try to sort of avoid you know if, if you've got sort of some calves which are quite a few weeks or a month or two older than sort of other calves then they can the younger calves can pick something up from them or something like that so try to sort of keep them age-wise as well then for sort of you know good good husbandry and stuff as well then 
So you've not been farming terribly long and we've talked about your rugby highlights. What's been your favourite part of farming so far? There's been one or two not so favourite parts, I can tell you. But, um, <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> the favourite parts, really, I think, you know, when, when it's when the, when, when the cows go out in the spring, you know, or like, in, like now in the autumn, you, you know, you've got the sun is setting in the evening or in the summer and the spring and you, you go out and check the cows in the field and they're out there lying down or grazing and the sun is going down. It, it, it's so relaxing, it's so beautiful. And, yeah. and as well, you know, a lot of stress of calving, although I'm getting a little bit better at it now, it, you know, when a new calf is born and, you know, those first couple of days you just turn them out and they start sort of running about and stuff. That, to me, that, that is, that's so, so, so special, really, you know, that is. Yeah. And obviously, but the, when you have live animals, unfortunately, you, you come across some, some dead ones as well. So there are some times which are quite challenging as well. But I've been quite lucky, really, touch wood so far. Of all the sort of 46 calves that have been born here in the last sort of two and a half years, only one we lost because the... um. Cow with a twisted uterus. Um, okay. So there was nothing we could do. You know, once it no. twisted right down, it, it, the calf had gone, unfortunately. So yeah. I'm always here when calving, or, or Barry will be here, my partner, always trying to make sure that I'm here. Sometimes, you know, you, you, you get it wrong. You know, you say, I'll go back in a couple of hours, and then you come home, and the calf is, is on the ground and up, which is great. But yeah. I always like to be here to keep an eye because um, when things happen and you can't avoid it, it happens. Like, you know, like the twisted uterus. There's nothing you could do about it, really. Oh, you'd be very lucky if you could. But I would hate to sort of, you know, lose a, a young life of a calf if just because I wasn't there just to sort of make sure that his airway was sort of... Yeah. Clear. So, so little things like that sometimes can make a huge difference. So I'm, that's why I'm always keeping an eye on from a distance when there's, when there's calving and, and ready if I'm needed, like, you know, so... Um, or for, for some reason last year, we had a couple of, of breaches for some reason, you know, okay. three or four of them. Right. Um, only one this year, thankfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, two, sorry. Um, so, you know, obviously when, when you have a breach, you know, being there to just give a little pull that, that lasts a little bit can be a difference between life and death, really. So that's yeah. why I always like to be here, uh, which can be quite stressful calving time. But uh, there's no better feeling, really, when that little calf is out and alive and, and up and about. Absolutely. And Absolutely. The satisfaction of a, a job well done. So what is your aim for the farm? Where do you hope to be in the next five to ten years with your business? I'm probably, um, as I said, we're up to 72 here now, but, you know, that's calves and sort of, you know, there's about 14, 15 young bulls in, in that lot as well. So the herd will sort of, I'm trying to cut it back down a bit, to be honest, that so we will be around the sort of 60 mark, something like that. Um, okay. I was going to show this year, um, we had a lovely young bull born here eight, 20, 22 months ago from, uh, he was from Normanton Leites, which won the Royal Welsh as an overall I think the first head foot bull to win the Royal Welsh uh, as overall champion. And he was a lovely bull. So he was going to go to the show this year. And he's coming along well, a young guy who lives in the family, and he, you know, clips and stuff and helps out. Mm-hmm. And um, he pulled the ring out of his nose, unfortunately. Yeah. So we put an end on that. And then, yeah. unfortunately, last week then, um, one of my neighbours who rents his fields out, and I keep my cattle away, they do silage there. But then they graze some fields further behind. And obviously, they've done the third cut of silage and they turn the cows into everything. And one of his heifers, Holstein heifer, was, was bulling and she jumped into one of our fields. That then attracted the bull then, who was a further field away. Oh, and no. he jumped on the gate and unfortunately, he, he died on the gate, unfortunately. Oh, so, no. Um, this, that bull. So it was very, very sad last week. And I was oh, so blinking annoyed. So that wasn't some 
few choice words with with the farmer that he, you know he hadn't fenced his side, so he shouldn't have turned his mm. cattle in there if he was going to yeah. fence his side. So um, I was very sad last week. So so we lost him unfortunately. I hope to take a, you know maybe one or two to a local show or something next year. Um, yep. I can't see me going down the showing route. It's a lot of hard work and yeah, a lot yeah. of time consuming, which 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 is fine. You know the hard work is not a problem, but the time consuming. But uh, I will support a couple of local shows. I think, and it's just it's just pride in your own herd, really. Like you know, and and yeah. hopefully you know breed cattle that people will will want to buy. You know, I touch wood. I haven't had any problems selling stuff. First, as I've sold a cow and calf at foot, and then calf to my main stock bull, Sugar Ray. And a heifer in calf, and another heifer in calf I've sold, um, which are going in the next couple of weeks. And a couple of young heifers in calf I sold them a couple of weeks ago as well. So, and a couple of young bulls um, will be going when they're ready now. I'm hoping to take two to the Harry for spring sale mm-hmm. in the spring. So, so that's the goal, really. You know, um, yeah. a hobby and enjoyment, but but also hopefully that they'll um, they'll be able to pay and look after themselves uh, from now yeah. on because uh, I've been doing it the last two years. <laughs> it's time to earn their keep. So what top tips would you give to someone who's starting out in agriculture then? Yeah, I, like, I think agriculture is very similar, I think. Because of the challenges it brings, it's very similar to refereeing. It's got to be something you enjoy and you're passionate about because the stresses and, and, and the pressure of refereeing, the abuse you can get, the scrutiny you're under unless you're enjoying it and passionate about it, you're not going to be able to do it or certainly not give it your best. And I think farming is very yeah. similar. You know, it's something that you need to be passionate about, something that you're going to enjoy because there's a, a huge amount of highs in it. There's a lot of lows in it as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a huge commitment as well. So, 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 you know, be passionate and something you really do want to do and, you know, get into something that is going to be a lot of, a lot of hard work, but enjoyable and rewarding as well. And, um, like you, you, just like refereeing, very similar to refereeing, you, you, you're going to make mistakes along along the way. Yeah. What I, I tr- the biggest advice I can give is don't be afraid to ask for help and advice. You know, I've always asked my sort of vets advice and they're very good. The, the post-op vets we got here, they live from far away, The vet, my, my vet, and they're great. They're always on the end of the phone or, yeah. you know, you sent a picture, you know, does this look all right? And they say, well, no, you better get somebody out to say, no, that's fine. And so... And as obviously as as you learn, then you're able to sort of you know because it's you, you've got to make mistakes. Um, but obviously, what you want to avoid doing is is making a mistake that's going to cost a lot of money or or, or cost a life or something. You know, so yeah, you know, so don't be afraid to sort of ask for advice and, and learn. And that's what I've done because I've come into it really, you know, with a lot of learning to do. Although I had a little bit of bit of bit of background really, so I've been very lucky mm-hmm. with some neighbours around here. Um, neighbouring farms were are always sort of you know happy to to help and stuff like that but um you know if you're going into it be prepared that you know that you are going to something that's going to take a lot of commitment uh, obviously that varies on the sort of the amount of food you have something that's very enjoyable a lot of commitment and and it's a little bit when somebody you know gets i, I think a lot of people realize this in lockdown when everybody got a dog to walk and then they start realizing the work and the commitment that comes with keeping a dog and you know you're 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 tired. You, you've got to come home and feed it. You just can't leave the dog for a couple of days. So if you're going into farming, just be be prepared. You know that you know that you've got you're getting into, um, because as I said, it is it can be quite stressful or hard work, but hugely rewarding as well. So you know if if you really are passionate about it, I you know go for it. Uh, but obviously you know do your preparation. I guess you know. So we sort of touched on personal resilience a little bit there about, you know, being prepared and being prepared for the highs and the lows. 
you've talked openly in the past about your struggles with mental health as a young man. Can you tell us a bit about that time of your life? Yeah, it was a very, very difficult time in my life really for quite a quite a sort of period of probably about in in total probably 10, 12 years probably when I struggled Gosh. with it. Um, and the reason why I struggled with the mental health was because I didn't sort of do anything. I, although I identified what the cause or the reason was, I did nothing about it. Didn't ask for help, didn't seek for help. It was different back then to what it was now, you know, sexual, struggling with my sexuality, um, yeah. particularly back in sort of the 70s, 80s in rural West Wales was a very difficult place to be. And, you know, it, it, it affected my my well-being mentally and physically because I suffered them from the eating disorder, bulimia as well as part of that mental health struggles as well. And then obviously when I accepted who I was and then sort of asked for help and spoke about things, the issue was dealt with. And, and so that would be my biggest advice to anybody listening really is, you know, if you are struggling, acceptance, I think, is 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 the key thing here as well. Because unless you accept you are struggling, you know, if you're just going to brush things under the carpet or you're going to you know, not accept that, you know, I'm struggling here, I need help, uh, then you can't go on to the next stage or what are you going to do about it? And then it, it can get too much and it can get it, get you down like it yeah. did to me. Um, and once you've accepted, look, I'm, I'm struggling, then, you know, don't be afraid. See, a lot of people see asking for help as a sign of weakness, particularly in the macho world of the agricultural and farming community, uh, a bit like other industries as well. But it's actually a sign of great strength, you know, so don't be afraid to ask for help. And then when you ask for help and you can identify what's causing the mental health and the issues, then you have a chance for doing something about it. And because I accepted who I was and then was accepted for who I was, the mental health issue was dealt with. It it, it had gone. You know, you yeah. still get days. Every We all get days when you know, we're feeling down. Last week, you know, I didn't sleep for three nights, you know, after finding the bull like that was really upsetting so you get days which get you down and you question yourself could you have done things this could you have done things better could you have done this you know could you have done that so my advice would be you know don't don't struggle alone you know you won't be the only one but but seek help ask help whether it be perfect there are professional helps out there there are different charities and organizations out there that offer help particularly the farming community as well mm-hmm. um but don't don't be afraid to, to ask for help um, because if you do ask for help, then there's a good chance that you're able to deal with, with those issues. So don't struggle alone on it. So what was the most difficult part for you coming out as gay? Why did you decide that it was the right time then? And what led you to to ask for help? Well, I couldn't carry on living that lie anymore because it was affecting my... Because unless you're happy within yourself and allowed to be yourself, there's no way you can enjoy your life and be the best at what you can be. So if you imagine you know, every day you're, you're living with that burden or the worry of being found out living a lie constant living in fear of being found out and would you be accepted and obviously then after the the suicide attempt where I was sort of very lucky to get a second chance I sort of accepted who I was even though I still didn't tell anybody for another sort of eight to nine years I still lived that lie after that and still was affecting me but not to the extent it was before then and then you know it, it, it came to a stage it was affecting my my life I wasn't able to enjoy myself and be myself and I wasn't sort of refereeing to the best of my ability because in the back of my mind was a constant fear of being found out. Um, so I thought, I can't carry on living like this, you know. It's affecting everything. And I wasn't refereeing as well as I could be. And I thought, I, I can't live this lie anymore. So I went to tell mm-hmm. my mum, first of all. I went to tell my line manager in work. And everybody was hugely supportive. Um, and as I said, the rest is history, I suppose. And I was accepted and was able then to just 
get on with my life. You know, I, I don't shout you from the rooftops. I don't shy away from it. You know, I, I talk off openly about those struggles, hoping it'll help other people as well, not just from the sexuality side of things, but from mental health side of things as well. And just was able to get on with my life and be my be myself. And then since then, you know, my refereeing career then took off because I was going out in that field, being able to be who I was and, and enjoying what I was doing without the worry and the burden of, of living that lie. And that's why in the end, so I said, like, you know, I couldn't carry on living that lie anymore. How important do you think it is to have diversity represented in sport and, and indeed in farming? I think what is important that we don't force the issue, that we don't sort of tick boxes. The important thing is people are allowed to be themselves and you create an environment where people feel that they can be themselves. Yeah. And you are judged on the content of your character and the ability to perform your, your task. You know, you shouldn't have to decide about employing, say, somebody on the farm or in your company or, um, because of their, we're not going to employ him because he's gay, we're not going to employ him because he's a man because we need to employ a woman, or we're not going to employ a woman because we need a man. You should employ somebody because they're the best per- person to the job. And that's what I believe equality and diversity will grow in strength and be- we can become a much more diverse and inclusive society and workplace and agricultural community because people are judged on their ability and and who they are uh, yeah. as a as a person and as a personality not on on anything else ticking boxes so it's hugely important for me equality and diversity is hugely important but it must always be for the right reason you know i i should have never been appointed to referee the world cup because i was gay and it ticks a box it look good on world rugby cv first openly gay man to referee a, a major world final I should be appointed to referee the final because I was the best and nothing else. And I think that is the key message and importance of diversity and inclusion, I think. I think you're right. It's about removing that prejudice when you're interviewing someone for yeah. a job, you know, in- involving someone in the sport. It, it's, yeah, getting everyone on a level playing field. And I think we've still got a, a lot of work to do on that, but I'm guessing things are better than from when you first started in rugby. Things definitely have moved on, yeah. And, and to yeah. be fair, when I, when I started in, 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 in rugby as sort of, when I when I did come out in rugby, rugby was hugely supportive. So I think rugby has has led the sort of front on that. This, what you have to remember is there'll be individuals in all walks of life, in sport, in in communities, in workplaces, who will not like somebody for whatever different reason. But that doesn't mean then that the whole sport has to be judged by that individual or by that minority uh, views yeah. on, on on people. So we've talked a little bit about the similarities that can be drawn between farming and, and rugby. You know, I think both can be quite a lonely and isolating job. When you, You've talked before in the past about when you were refereeing, you're obviously not travelling as part of the team as the players are, and it can be quite lonely and isolating. And you've also mentioned having to travel long distances for just a couple of days, so that must have been quite challenging. How do you cope with that as a referee, and can you offer any advice to farmers struggling with their loneliness? Yeah, it is. Refereeing can be, it is, was a very lonely job. You spend a lot of time, tra- as you said, traveling on your own. Sometimes you travel with your team as well, but you're away from home. So a lot mm-hmm. of time on, on, on your own. And I didn't, I wouldn't say that I enjoyed being on my own, but I learned to deal with it. And that was by having friends in, in different countries, follow referees you'd catch up with when you went to New Zealand 
you you know obviously now with social media today you can you can keep in touch with people you've got you've got zoom yeah. you've got facetime so you can keep in touch even if you are in an isolated situation or you are away from home and that i think is is, is important i think and, and i think you know that and this is where communities like farmers go into the to the local market you know once a week or every few weeks or even once a month it means you go, you see people, you chat to people, you catch up with people, and that contributes hugely, I think, to a healthy well-being mentally as well as as physically as well. And um, you know, my message would be, you know, it is some people are comfortable working on their own, and that's fine. You know, they they're happy out in the fields working on their own, and they deal with it and they get on with it. Um, others, you know, like to have company. Others like, you know, to, to have conversations with people as well. And I think that is important. I think, you know, that we we do sort of keep in touch and check people are okay. And and that's what I think the farming community, even though we can be quite in some sort of rural parts, can be quite lonely sometimes. It's a very close knit community, and then that keeps people together. You know, different. Yeah. You know, maybe some. Young people could be living or at home or working on a farm in a very remote area, and it's only when they see other people when they go to the young farmers club uh, on 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 an evening in the night or you know whatever reason. So I think it is important. I think that people do sort of you know keep in touch and, and keep an eye out for people as well, and and sort of put things in place. You know that you you do to make an effort to go and to the market once a week or go and see people or catch up with people because it is important. I think. So what drives you personally, Nigel? What, why do you do what you do? Enjoyment. As simple, as simple as that. Um, because if, if I wasn't enjoying it, I, you know, I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't be doing this farming to make money. Um, as I said, <laughs> I hope it's going to start looking after itself. And the, pay, the cows, if I need to change the tractor, the cows will contribute to that or pay for it in a couple of years' time to come. But the enjoyment of it, the same as I did my refereeing. When people ask me, why, you, why did you carry on refereeing off the World Cup final for another four years of all the pressures and you've achieved there's nothing more to achieve and it was the simple reason because i enjoyed it as i enjoyed what i was doing i I loved being out on on that field and and that's why and so finally then what is success for you and how do you measure it oh that's a good question i think a huge part of success for me would be something that you've achieved because you were passionate and you've enjoyed doing it so enjoyment is a huge part of success by achieving something which you haven't enjoyed doing to me that's that's not success and and you, you i suppose you could measure it in in all you know different different forms you know there's a one cap that fits all there but I, I suppose you know if, if you are acknowledged to be the best in the world and referee the world cup final then that is an achievement i guess you know and whatever goals you set yourself no matter how, how big those goals are how small they are you know is when you achieve those goals that's that's an achievement really i guess and the enjoyment of achieving it as well. Thank you very much for your time today, Nigel. My pleasure, thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Agriculture. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find our contact details in the show notes. If you too are passionate about Herefords, you might enjoy listening to our sister show, Stock Talk, available wherever you get your podcasts. If you've been affected by any of the issues raised in today's episode, we would encourage you to find links to support in the show notes. The Farm Advisory Service Podcast. Audio advice on livestock, crops and soils, environment, rural business and more. Brought to you in association with the Scottish Government.